This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, I'll be discussing Britain's depleted army, asking whether faith and politics can mix, and learning about the transformative power of folk costume. First up, farewell to arms. In his cover piece for the magazine, the historian Andrew Roberts writes that the British army has suffered from years of underfunding, as well as a lack of foresight when it comes to replacing the munitions we have sent to Ukraine. I'm joined by the historian Anthony Beaver and the author and Guardian columnist Simon Jenkins to discuss. Anthony, to start us off, what did you make of Andrew's argument? Well, I agree with many aspects of it. I think one of the most ridiculous things we had under Boris Johnson was the idea that we could be a global power with a carrier fleet in the Far East and all the rest of it. That is simply preposterous. The trouble is that we are a prisoner, really, of the past, whether it's a question of Trident. uh, The Americans don't want us to give up Trident for obvious reasons, but that's a totally disproportionate part of of our spending. So I think that the whole thing needs to be rethought rather carefully, whether it's a question of getting rid of, uh, uh, as I say, getting rid of Trident and all the costs there. Because if you don't have an army which can actually operate certainly within area, as it was called in sort of uh, Cold War days, uh, forget about operating out of area. But I mean, if we can't operate in Europe itself, then I'm afraid that the British army is in a very, very sorry state. And Ben Wallace's speech last month, in which he said that the British army has been, in his words, hollowed out and underfunded, is that a pretty extraordinary statement for a a serving Secretary of State to make in in such blunt terms? Yes, it is an extraordinary statement, uh, and especially for a government which has been in power for, for so long. I think there was a tremendous underestimation. We blame the European Union for not having invested enough in defence over the years. But in fact, that's been the case uh, very much uh, in this particular country. Hmm. And to be in a position where we simply have not got enough ammunition uh, for a few days of warfare, we're having to hand over our tanks and we haven't got any basically to replace them straight away or very soon, uh, I think shows that we're in a very uh, weakened position. Simon, I would I would love to get your take on this, if I may, because you have for some time now been a, uh, an opponent of increased defence spending. And you've also said in the past that there is little need for a military as conventional warfare is increasingly becoming a thing of the past. I wonder, has the conflict in Ukraine altered your opinion? Yeah, uh, mercifully, I'm not a politician. <laughs> I, I am entitled to change my mind occasionally. But no, I haven't changed it that much. Uh, and I think one of the problems of the debate you're having already is it's it's conducted in basically 20th century terms about land battles and you know, fights across Central Europe and, and the, the status of the West in the, in, in, in the Far East in battles like that. And I find it very difficult to adjust the language from the, the language of post-imperialism, which is just Boris Johnson's language of, of, of global outreach and influence and so on, which I think is completely fatuous. I mean, I agree with Anthony here. But um, to confront the much more serious matter, which is what does Britain need to defend itself? 
And uh, the, the, the key to British history right through has been the fact that we live in an island and the island is very easy to defend on the whole. We are not threatened in the way in which I would feel threatened if I was a Pole or Hungarian or, for that matter, a Ukrainian. And I do think that makes a difference. But we are committed to NATO. And in Europe, we, NATO is the issue here. Um, NATO is in, in, in the forefront of the argument about Ukraine. It's very difficult, I think, to work out quite what we should do. But it's a moment of great danger for the obvious reason that you have a nuclear power, in a sense, confronting another nuclear power. And I'm impressed by the way NATO's handled it so far. I, I think it's been cautious and careful and very firm. It's not going to do certain things because that would overstimulate Russia. But the one thing I am quite clear about, I think, is what this has to do with defence expenditure is, is, is almost completely opaque now. We, we, we've got 80,000 80, troops under arms at the moment in the army, forget the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, that seems an awful lot. Um, it's supposed to be the smallest in 400 years, but it's an awful lot. Uh, and anyway, I don't quite see how they're going to be deployed. Um, if you're really talking about sending tanks right across Europe you know, to, to the borders of Russia, I have to say, I think that's mad. I mean, what's the point of having a nuclear weapon if we can't deter that sort of war? That was the whole argument for nuclear weapons. But either way, modern conflict, other than the current one in Ukraine, which I think is wholly exceptional, is all about all kinds of things that, that, that we're seeing elsewhere. Drones, cyber warfare, uh, the use we make of economic sanctions, these sorts of weapons, sorts of weapons which I saw in Iraq. Uh, in Iraq, everyone thought Iraq was being fought by soldiers. Half the Western servicemen in Iraq were actually civilians, contractors. They were all doing artificial intelligence, cyber warfare, all these kinds of things. Wars changed so radically that to see it in these, in these almost sort of 19th century terms of armies in the field is wrong. But Simon, if, if, if it has changed as radically as you say, why is it then that the Ukrainian government is asking for things like tanks, a very 20th century type of, type of uh, equipment? It, 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 there's no question. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, a mad, exceptional sort of war. We didn't get this worked up about it when it was a clear frontier war in Donbass in 2014, 15, 16. Maybe we should, but we didn't. We felt it was a local war. Putin, in a sense, he's gone mad. And the thing caused me to change my mind slightly is, what do we do about madmen? I mean, you've got a madman in charge of nuclear weapons here. It does, it does constitute a serious threat. We've got to talk about it in serious terms. But I, I just don't think great floods of, of, of Western troops invading Ukraine because it's the bullish macho thing to do is the right way of looking at it. Well, um, um, Simon, every war is exceptional. I mean, here we were at the beginning of the war when we see Putin's disastrous advance on Kiev with tanks agreed in the way of the Russians entering Berlin in 1945. And we were not prepared for it. But at the same time, we're now hearing that we need tanks or that Ukrainians need tanks. Now, quite often this happens and we have to be ready for these sort of elements. Now, you do not want to have, obviously, any British troops across the channel. I mean, one might as well go to Costa Rica levels of uh, abolishing everything except for the police at that particular rate. But I think if we are going to make a commitment to NATO, and let's face it, NATO, by its solidarity at the moment and by its effect, as you rightly recognise, is actually doing rather a good job. So I think we've got to maintain our contribution there. And the only way to do it is with a properly equipped and armed army. 
Now, I agree that there have been huge uh, mistakes in the past. Sometimes these have come from in Iraq, Afghanistan, from generals being much too can-do and actually taking on commitments which the army was simply not large enough or uh, well enough equipped to take on. And there have, of course, been disasters in procurement, uh, like with the Ajax and and so forth, which is now being sorted out. But I really do think that uh, we cannot start to uh, abandon the rest of Europe in this particular way by simply sort of saying, oh, well, we can we can hide behind the channel and you lot get on with it. Well, just can we come back to what what, what does the word defence mean? It means the protection of our shores. We join with Europe intermittently throughout history. Uh, I keep saying we've done Brexit 10 times. We've done we've done re-entry 10 times. But it's always been because we're worried about our own defence and security. And I don't see that's a, a, a wrong thing for a government to do. It was really Blaise who changed the rhetoric. To, we're, we're defending freedom of the world all over. We've got to project our influence as we did when we were in empire. I don't accept that. I just don't believe it. I believe defence is about defending our people. If we dodge that one, if we're told that our defence requires us to conquer Crimea again, I think we're going mad. We've just got to keep it in proportion. Now, I personally believe that it was right to aid Ukraine because what happened to Ukraine was so outrageous. It was in our continent. We do have some obligations in those terms and and they needed tanks. And I'm happy to give them tanks and plenty more tanks. I've got no problem with that at all. I don't honestly think it it needs British troops or British troops should be devoted to that. It's a dispute between Russia and Ukraine uh, and and, um, justice is on our side, yes. But that doesn't extend to us going to war. We did exactly this attitude during the war of the Spanish succession and so on. We, we had to decide where we going to get involved. We did in the end. It didn't do as much good. But all these arguments are arguments that it's proper to have for a country trying to defend itself. It's not automatic. Oh, there's a war going on. We must be involved in it. I think that's madness. Hmm. Anthony, where, how does our army and its uh, underfunding compare to the rest of Europe? I mean, we, we often read a lot about the sort of underfunding of the German army and so on. I mean, relative to perhaps Europe or, or other NATO members, are we are we very much worse? Well, the British army has dropped from 103,000 and now is going down into the 70,000s, which is pretty disastrous. Now, Simon rightly says that there is much more emphasis on other alternative methods of warfare, whether cyber and so forth. And obviously that takes uh, things into account particularly when it comes to battlefield weapons, drones, and so forth, which can be far more effective. That is absolutely true. But you do then get down to a particular level where you simply do not have the flexibility or the backup to actually put boots on the ground. And finally, when it comes to various uh, scenarios, you do need infantry, tanks, artillery or whatever to hold that particular ground in the in the old fashioned way. So it's a combination of new and old. And you cannot ignore the old, what used to be called in Cold War days, the heavy army, as opposed to the light army, which was very much the tilt towards the Middle East during the early 2000s and so forth after 9-11. And I think that we've been led astray by the idea of uh, following the tilt to the Indo-Pacific region, where, frankly, we have not got interests of a major sort apart from world peace and stability. So uh, I think that until we actually concentrate on what the real priorities are, 
and they must be looked through very, very carefully. Uh, I don't think that we can do anything more than bring the army back up to the sort of strength uh, which it had a short time ago, only um, only about sort of ten years ago. Simon, do you think there's an argument that Britain's influence? perhaps is more diplomatic than anything else. I mean, um, when Zelensky came to and spoke at Westminster Hall and how he thanked the Prime Minister and thanked Britain for being among the first to send weapons such as tanks, it, it could not the argument be made that Britain's role perhaps is more um, leading the way than the actual amount, the actual substance of equipment that, that we are able to, to send? Well, I don't know what these words mean. I mean, they tend to reflect one's underlying bias rather than any sort of sensible way of taking the argument forward. When Tobias Elwood always talks about our influence around the world and you know our standing in, in the, 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 the councils of, of, the, of the mighty. I mean, it's just, just, it's just a ridiculous. I mean, can we just talk practical? We're trying to defend the country. The question, how do we best defend the country? I, I had I was you know I was proud of the fact that we sent tanks. I thought it was it was a gesture, if you like, of humanitarian relief. It was more than humanitarian relief. It was it was of great use to them. I do not believe that British troops should be put into the field uh, against Vladimir Putin. I do not think comparisons with Hitler in any argument are ever helpful. Uh, it really does immediately lead one into the trenches of, of, of hysteria. Uh, I, I see no evidence that Russia wants to conquer Europe. I really don't. And I find that the way the defence lobby leap on anything like this to demand more money, frankly, just lobbying. Now, on the matter of, on the matter of expenditure, one third of Britain, Britain's defence expenditure goes on these extravagant vanity projects, which are crazy. They are absolutely crazy. But they're what the defence lobby demand all the time and blame you for giving in to Hitler if you don't give them the money. Um, this is not a sensible argument. I do think that there are things that soldiers are needed for. Uh, they're needed for, for um, civilian support in many cases, but they're, they're very rarely going to need to be shipped abroad. Wherever they've been shipped abroad, in seven wars under Tony Blair, they tended to lose. The reason is that people are best when fighting for their soil. Uh, we've seen that in Afghanistan, where we were beaten by AK-47s and the Taliban. No kit. It was just AK-47s and the Taliban. Um, we, we, we were defeated by much the same sort of force in Iraq. We, we do not do well. The way that uh, Ukraine has defended itself is by defending its own soil and doing so fiercely. And you see what um, what a number of strategists have always said: the safest way to to win a war is to be is to be defending your own soil um, and concentrate on that. Aid people who are defending their soil, but don't go and defend it for them. You can you can do what the what the what the, what the Russians are doing in Syria, but my God, it's a mess. Um, I think the best thing to do is we can do all we can to support Zelensky, but not indefinitely, uh, not to defeat Russia, which is the great language you've got to use at this stage in a war, um, but try and sensibly reach a compromise at some point where he can realise he made a mistake and he can withdraw. Um, I just don't regard this as a third world war. And if it becomes a third world war, we will be partly to blame. Uh, He talks about diplomacy, but I mean, the trouble is we're into Cold War II. In Cold War One, one could trust basically the assurance of communist leaders, whether in Russia or China, and on the whole, they stuck to what they said. We're now in a new geopolitical world where they will change their minds or make false promises or whatever it may be, and there can be no reliance on traditional diplomacy. 
And this makes it a very much more dangerous world. And that actually is one whereby without actually sending troops into Ukraine, we have got to show that we are very much a solid part of NATO and that Putin's ambitions to take over more of Europe, like Moldova and other places, will be thwarted completely. Well, Moldova isn't in NATO. Um, Ukraine isn't in NATO. Uh, d- diplomacy has to operate on the rules that are laid up or laid down at the time when you're conducting your diplomacy. I just don't see any point in 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 in, in assuming that Russia as a nation, as a polity, has changed altogether from even the Cold War stage into, into, into a sort of complete anarchy. Putin will not be there forever. Crimea will be there forever. Crimea will always be, in a sense, a part of that southern Russian um, enclave on, on the Black Sea, and it'll, it'll have to make its peace with its, with its neighbours. I, I, I don't see any problem there. All I see a problem in is, is us, in a sense, not facilitating that return to normality. Uh, and I think that by talking belligerently, you just do that. You don't get anywhere. It doesn't work. This has got to be sorted out sooner or later. And it would be nice if we were a party to sorting it out rather than to making it worse. Well, Anthony and Simon, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Next, in The Spectator this week, Isabel Hardman asks, why is it only Christian politicians are forced to defend their beliefs? This, of course, is in light of the news that Kate Forbes' bid to become the new S&P leader may have been derailed by her views on gay marriage. Isabel joins me now alongside former Liberal Democrat leader Tim Farron, who also writes in the magazine this week on his experience of what Isabel calls the secular inquisition. Isabel, do you think it was a political mistake for Kate Forbes to be so candid about her religious beliefs? I think it's a big gamble. I can understand why she has decided to take the heat early by answering all of the questions very openly. Uh, And to a certain extent, I really admire that because she is giving the SNP membership, potentially the, the Scottish electorate, a real sense of who she is. So there will be no surprises later on and they can decide whether or not they want somebody who holds those personal views to be their leader. So, you know, to an extent, at least the contest is is more honest. I think it's very interesting within the context of the SNP membership. And I don't just mean in terms of those who are younger, more socially liberal members, or indeed the, the large chunk of white male independence-obsessed SNP members who will just be like, why are you talking about anything that isn't independence? Who will actually probably be more offended by that than they might be about anything she'd say about marriage. But also, actually, the, the choices she is making compared to fellow Christians. So I was talking to some uh, some SNP MPs over the past few days, and they were saying that, look, you know, Ian Blackford hails from this Christian tradition as well. And as SNP Westminster Group leader, he always managed to navigate it fine and with respect. And they feel as though there is possibly a lack of empathy in some of the ways in which she's answering these questions very directly. Possibly a, a sort of a missing understanding that when you say that children should be born within marriage, you might want to express some some sense of pathos for, for your friends who you know have got children out of wedlock, which is actually... the the most common situation uh, now for for babies being born in the UK. Tim, what did you make of the reaction to Kate Forbes' comments and uh, her her declaration of her deeply held beliefs on certain issues? Uh, Did did you get flashbacks to the kind of questions that you were asked when you were Lib Dem leader in the 2017 election campaign? 
I don't. I, I don't. I don't live in a, a constant state of heightened anxiety about all that. I'm very <laughs> comfortable about where I am and on all the rest of it. But yeah, obviously there are some uh, comparisons and equivalences. In, in one sense, I think, as we just heard, really, and I think Isabel makes the point very well. She has been upfront, and I think she's not been evasive. I think my major critical criticism of myself is that I was. And so, having said these things up front, yes, of course, she risks losing as a result. She does. But I think that's something that is a, a good risk to take rather than to have it as an issue that hangs around later. I think that the issue about who the SNP now choose will be very interesting. I suspect, having been very direct early on, she will be well within her rights and I think will win public sympathy in doing so to say to journalists who keep asking the same sorts of questions, look, I've answered this. Let's talk about independence. Let's talk about the health service. Let's talk about education. And I think she will win. She will probably win the right to do that. Whether that wins her enough hearing within the members for her to win is another question. So maybe we'll stop talking about this in a few days' time until the result comes through. And if she's not successful, and I'm not, I mean, I'm being slightly mischievous here, but if you just look at the candidates, ignore all this stuff the last few days, she is the best candidate. She's the most competent candidate. You look at how Humza Yusuf has run his department, departments, how she's run hers, she's head and shoulders. And so the SNP choosing a weaker person to lead them because they have a problem with her personal faith, that would be an interesting comment. I think it'd also be very damaging to the SNP. And and Tim, regarding the reaction to someone with personal faith, I mean, do you see this argument around Kate Forbes in the kind of, I think, often quite overblown reaction to to things she said? Is it is it proof that in the modern world, religion and politics don't mix? So I think, first of all, everybody's got a worldview, um, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, you believe something else, maybe you have a very strong political conviction that gives you a, a clear worldview, or maybe it's just a kind of a, an amorphous amalgam of all sorts of things that make up how you see the world. Nobody's neutral. That's the point. Nobody is neutral. So the idea that people who have a, a stated formal faith have to somehow park their worldview at the door, but if you don't have that, you can bring yours in, that's intellectual nonsense and it's actually illiberal. So in one sense, we should be absolutely fine about people bringing their faith to the table. On the other hand, I've always felt, and I think this is a good liberal position, not a liberal theological position, but as a liberal position, that it is not my job as a legislator, as a Christian, to legislate to make people who are not Christians live as though they were. I think that's illiberal. I think it's counterproductive. I don't think the Bible tells us to do that as Christians. Also, the difficulty is people will feel and it's definitely not what she means, by the way, but people will sometimes feel that they're being got at by the things that, you know, Christians think. And and that's where I do regret the line of questioning, which I don't blame Kate for one little bit, is that it, it's all partial. You know, what, why is it we think these restrictive things, you know? And it's because we believe in something far more liberating and much more vast in a God who absolutely loves us. And we aren't saved by doing lots of good works and avoiding all these terrible, terrible things. We're saved because he died for us. And we only seek to do good in response to that. And I don't think Kate's being given much room to expand on the gospel. But I guess her job is to win an election, not to take us all through a crash course in theology. Well, well Isabel, um, Tim's point there that nobody is neutral is a point you make very well in your piece. I mean, do you think there is a illiberal attitude in our politics in this country towards 
those whose beliefs are scrutinised and those who aren't? So I think things are improving, possibly, in fact, entirely unintentionally, things are improving because people who do not have religious worldviews are now having to answer moral questions and are finding themselves the, the subject of suspicion. And the, the greatest example of this is obviously the, the gender debate, which is one of the main factors in why we're having an SNP leadership contest uh, because of the mess that, that has been made of it in Holyrood. And as I say in the piece, you could see on Nicola Sturgeon's face when she was being interviewed uh, about this and asked about it at FMQs as well, a sort of exasperation when she was pushed on the logical conclusions of some of her beliefs, that people would be asking questions of people like her that were like Mm -hmm. this. When actually, I think, you know, Tim has grown very used to that discomfort. And when I was writing the piece, I I used to be an evangelical Christian. I, I grew very used to having to answer those sorts of questions. Weirdly, since I lost my faith... People don't really ask me those questions anymore because they they clearly think that I don't have a sinister worldview. Actually, I remain the same stupid person that I was <laughs> before. And if I really interrogate some of my beliefs, some of them I'm much more comfortable with than I ever was when I was a Christian. So on sexuality, for instance, but others I think I've probably adopted partly because the people around me who I like hold them. And, you know, we all do that. We end up in groups, whether it's organised groups in church or social groups where we think, well, I'm going to think this on, on certain issues because my friends think it's right. Mm. That's never interrogated. And that's what Tim's saying is that all of us have this collection of beliefs and some of them are founded on, you know, to use a biblical analogy, on sand. Um, <laughs> and actually when they're, when they're questioned, as we've seen with Nicola Sturgeon, they start to fall apart. You know, mm. is a convicted rapist Isla Bryson a man or a woman? Well, she ended up saying, well, you know, they're a rapist because she couldn't, she just couldn't work out what the logical conclusion of something that she had really been pushing very hard was. Mm. I think that's quite good because I'd much rather everyone had to answer for possible magical thinking and allow the electorate to make up its own mind and there's nothing wrong with listening to Kate Forbes and thinking no she's wrong I I really disagree with her on marriage on you know this that and the other I think it's great though if we have that conversation across society and and if we're actually suspicious of everyone uh, rather than just of those with a, with an organised religious worldview who may, on some things, actually be able to teach those of us uh, without a faith something as well. I, I, I think that's really all really good points there. And I, I, th- I think we don't just need to be suspicious of one another. We also need to be curious about one another. Mm. There's a phrase I heard Elizabeth Oldfield use a couple of weeks ago, and I've nicked it regularly since, because I think that, that is actually at the heart of the problem, that we hear somebody who says or thinks things that are quite weird or strange or deeply unappealing to us, and we then put them in the box as the enemy, and we demonise them. And rather than being curious as to why they think those things, and I think actually maybe maybe key to a, a peaceful, genuinely liberal, tolerant society is being curious about why other people think these things. Now they may think them for absolutely appalling reasons, and we then might dismiss them. I don't think I'm going to give you know the BNP that much time. I'm not going to expend an awful lot of curiosity upon them. But on the whole, I think it's important for us to be curious about other people's point of view. One of the things that I find is a real blessing as a Christian, and it's partly a fellowship thing, and it's part just the fact that you speak to people. I spend a lot of time 
on my podcast, for example, talking to people who, are, who belong to different political parties and who think wildly different things to me on, in particular, Brexit and Scottish independence. And in the course of that, I have not changed my view one little bit, but I do feel I sympathise with the motives of the people who think something different as a consequence. And I think that's good. I think it's healthy. And, and so, I, yeah, curiosity, we need more of it. Tim and Isabel, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you very much. And finally, Christopher Howells writes the arts lead in the magazine this week, celebrating folklore tradition. He joins me now alongside Melanie Robinson, a project manager at the British Museum of Folklore and a co-curator of the Making Mischief exhibition. Christopher, what is it that makes folk costumes so fascinating? Is it that we simply don't know what it was all about? Well, it's half the appeal. The other half is that it does something to us which we're fascinated by. It disguises people. And actually, I was drawn to this by a photograph that appears in the exhibition at Compton Verney, uh, taken by Benjamin Stone, who set himself the task of recording... English life in various aspects, like having scones for tea and parliamentarians. Uh, He was around at the beginning of the 20th century. And there's a marvellous photograph by him of the Abbots Bromley horn dance. Now, there you have people in strange embroidered breeches with antlers. And the antlers have been sort of carbon dated, and they seem to be from about 1066, plus or minus 80 years. Amazing. Inexplicable. And they're reindeer horns, actually. They're not uh, red deer antlers. Anyway, in a corner of that picture, that photograph, there's a, a boy in a hobby horse, the kind where you have a sort of wickerwork skirt round you, and he's very solemn-faced, and then there's the horse's head sticking out. Now... What were these people doing? I don't know what they thought they were doing. And we certainly don't know what it's all about. But it is just not alienating, but it shows us an alien sight. And we're very interested in that. Uh, Melanie, would would you agree? Do you think there's a sort of alien quality to folklore and, and folk costume that is its uh, that is a big part of its appeal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's... It, kind of stepping out of the mundane, isn't it? It's becoming other for a specific period of time at a particular, you know, time of the year in a particular place. And it, and it is, you know, as as Christopher's pointed out, it's um it's been described as a kind of liminal space. You know, it's a threshold. So you you remaining who you are but becoming something else to somehow tap into who you are, if that makes any sense. Um, and that's where the disguise comes in and the, and the costume. It's, a, you know, a visual language. As, as you know, I mean, obviously, uh, folk traditions are expressed through performance, costume, music. They don't prioritise the written word, which, again, is where there is this lovely space that you can make up quite a lot and and that's the, the the freedom of it and you know a lot of the participants that you speak to will either respond saying well we've always done it like this have no idea why we're doing it and then you know you'll get other people that for them there, there's a really kind of deep mystical meaning but it it, it is all made up <laughs> Christopher you you uh could you perhaps 
tell our listeners about some of your favorite folk rituals that, that you have seen, perhaps in this country or in, or in uh, other countries uh, across the continent? Well, that's true, actually, because I think you can see our own folk performances, uh, folk disguises, more clearly if you see something that takes place abroad. And I'm always going off to Spain, which I'm trying to understand. It's taken me 30 years, but I don't think I'm much closer. <laughs> but they have a kind of jamboree at Zamora in the northwest of Spain once a year where they get the costumed performers from the villages over the whole of the northwest and indeed into Portugal. And it's not just the transformation visually, but very often they have cowbells tied to their waist, which has the effect of a very discordant clanging noise. And what with that and the shouting and possibly fireworks, you really are pushed into a a different world. The thing is that they don't have to do very much to transform themselves. There's a character called the Thangoron de Montemata, and he has a sort of party-coloured outfit. But his mask is just a huge disc, about two feet across, which is painted red. And he just holds it in front of his face. But just doing that makes him into a different being, you might think. There's a, a, a parallel there. There's, in England, in the Fens, there's the Whittlesea straw bear, which doesn't look much like a bear, but it doesn't look like a human being either. The performer is covered with straw in parallel arrangement, and instead of his head, he's got this sort of cone of straw, so you can't tell the front from the back of him, really. And once these people start moving, then you are really convinced that you've seen a new kind of creature. It's very extraordinary. Melanie, something that Christopher mentions in his piece is that horses' heads... Uh, crop up quite a lot in in folklore ritual. I wonder, are there other uh, symbols which consistently uh, reoccur from from ritual to ritual? Um, I think certainly the use of natural materials is something that that occurs. Obviously, it's linked to May Day festivities. Always tend to involve fresh flowers. You know, before we we had the May Day festivals that that we know today people went a-maying and that was essentially going out into the countryside to gather up fresh flowers to then decorate um, either a home or church. So yes, certainly natural materials. I mean, animals do crop up quite a bit. We've got a beautiful costume from the from EFTUS, the English Folk Dance and Song Society. We don't have a date for it, but it's linked to uh, longsword dancing and mummers plays. And it's got these beautiful patchwork motifs that are cut out to form the shapes mainly of of animals. T. Ordish, who was writing in the 19th century, uh, observed that this was, you know, this was quite common with these, these, these mumming costumes and that the animals were essentially a link to agriculture, rural work that, that these people did. I mean, again, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it certainly makes for a very interesting costume. And has uh, has folklore, Melanie? Has it uh, is it having something of a of a resurgence? Have you found in your work that that people are becoming, that more people are becoming interested in it? Yeah, I mean, the Museum of British Folklore was set up by Simon Costin in two thousand and nine. We're still a peripatetic organisation. We don't have a, a home, and we're hoping that 
following on from this exhibition, we might be a little closer. But I mean, having worked with Simon for over 10 years, we've certainly seen a real interest in in folk culture especially amongst young people actually you've got some really great things going on like the stone club which is an appreciation society for um neolithic uh, stone circles you've got boss morris who you might have seen performing at the brit awards this year oh yes with wet leg. They, yes and they've got, you know, a brilliant take on on Morris dancing where they design costumes that make references to club culture and, you know, really kind of moving it forward. Because I think that's the other thing is that people possibly think of, of folk traditions as being um, quite archaic and fixed. And they're absolutely not. This is very much a living heritage. But people like to pretend that they're very old, don't they? And so example of a a horse thing is the the Hodden horse in in Kent, uh, sometimes called the Hooden horse. And I think that really, by the Second World War, it was pretty well extinct, but it was revived in the 50s. And now everybody thinks it's always been going on every year. And there's a pub that's named, has been changed to the the Hooden Horse. So perhaps people reinvent, but I think there's quite a role for pretending that it's immemorial, even if it's not. Yeah, it's it's strange that people are so kind of wedded to that idea. And and you're absolutely right. There is this sense that, that they've been going on forever and... Another phrase I've heard is, you know, the origins are lost in the mists of time. And, they're, they're, you know, yes. they're, they're not. And when you look at the history of, of folk traditions in this country, there, there was a lot happening around kind of, you know, interest or, well, not interest, but construction of this idea of Merry England. Mm. And, and obviously, you know, Cecil Sharp in the early, late 19th, early 20th century was looking back to this, imagined past yes. um you know it's fairly recent all of the, all of this and just finally christopher we were talking just before we started recording for this podcast about those who see a more sinister side to to folklore there is a sort of subgenre within horror uh, horror films particularly of sort of folk horror and i wonder why you think it is that there are films such as the wicker man and, and midsummer and, and they're quite popular is it just because there's a sort of fear of the unknown that goes that, that comes along with folklore. I mean, why is it? Do you think that that some people do see folklore in this way? I think it might be a separate kind of apprehension that people like horror and they find that folk performances are something that they can project it onto. I mean, it's notable <laughs> that very often hobby horses are made with horses' skulls. They're not sort of wooden representations of ordinary horses' heads. And by the time you've got a horse's skull and you put in some bulging eyes and you have the jaw snapping, pulled by strings, then it is pretty impressive on a dark night when this thing barges into your house. So I don't think you necessarily have to invent your own horror. There's a certain admixture of it there already. (laughs) Well, Christopher and Melanie, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast... Pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.